Recorded live. Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the Eagle Air Quality Good day, wherever you are listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio. My name is Joe Hughes, or Radio Joe, and here with me in the studio is our cyber jockey, Zach Slotnick. Hey, Joe. And today we have also the unsmoked instructor extraordinaire, Bill Wigand, as well. Good day, Joe. With us on the phone is my co-host, Cliff Slotnick. Cliff, are you still out there? Hello, Cliff. Maybe he was try guest uh, two. Can you hear me all right? There you are, Cliff. Now we got you. We had the uh, guests backwards a little bit there. No problem. You're guest two. All right, Cliff. And uh, we also have a couple of great guests today. But before we get started with that, um, I would like to quickly go over our lineup. We'll have the microband trivia quiz, as always. The uh, Ron Gospodarski of BioRecovery Corporation will be here, and Tim Hoysert of Twins LLC. We also have on the line our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow. Dieter, are you there? Good morning. Hello, good morning, good uh, afternoon, good evening, whatever it may be. Wherever you are. Thank you, Dieter. And uh, we have uh, our i.e. connections what's news segment will be a part of the show today we have steve sauer coming in from the i.e. connections world hello steve can you say hello hi there glad to join you excellent welcome great to have you with us before we start we will first like to thank our sponsors for today's show microband systems the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com and, of course, our other original and continuing sponsor, Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. And very soon we will have those uh, links up on our webpage. Things are going along real nicely with that. To contact the show, you simply go to www.talkshoe.com and follow the directions. Our show ID is 1547 if you have any suggestions or would like to just email some questions at a later date, you can email me at info, I-N-F-O, at IAQtraining.com. Last but not least, I want to uh, make sure that people know that they can visit the IAQ Training Institute website for the most current dates for the training you trust at IAQtraining.com. I'm going to turn it over to Cliff here today for the microband trivia quiz, but before we do, I believe we have a little intro for it. Okay, Cliff. Okay, Joe. Can you hear me all right? You sound great. Good. Well, first of all, let's announce the winner of last week's uh, trivia quiz quiz contest. That was Darren Hudima. He answered the question correctly. The answer we were looking for for that question was Superman. This week's question comes from the field of mortuary science. We're looking, it's a two-part question. We're looking for the temperature and time period required to cremate an adult human body. So what temperature and what time period is required to cremate an adult human body? Back to you, Joe. Thank you, Cliff. You always come up with uh, something that's related to what we're about to discuss. Our first guest today is Ron Gospardowski. Gospardowski, I almost mangled it as bad as I uh, thought I might, but uh, Ron uh, is the president of BioRecovery Corporation based in New York City. They specialize in biohazard cleanups, crime, and trauma scenes, as well as other biological scenes such as anthrax, They decontaminated uh, numerous buildings in the New York area, and um, as well as having 
made six separate entries into the AMI building in South Florida. We have cleaned several cruise ships for Norwalk and the Norwalk light viruses. They've done everything from E. coli outbreaks to histoplasmosis, avian feces, as I like to refer to it, cleanups. Uh, he is a uh, master's degree in microbiology, worked in New York City as a paramedic, still licensed as one, worked at the World Trade Center disaster for the first four weeks, and he was actually on location uh, when the second tower collapsed. They have cleaned just about every major crime scene in New York City from August of 1998. They specialize in biohazard cleanup and also do more traditional restoration work such as fire and water damage restoration mitigation. Biorecovery Corp has been written up in New York Times, New York Newsday, Wall Street Journal, and numerous other publications. Welcome, Ron. Ron, what attracted you to this type of work? I'm sorry, I didn't hear that clip. Uh, what attracted you to do this type of work, changing careers from being a paramedic to doing this type of cleanup? Well, quite honestly, what had happened was I was looking for a uh, business to get into. I was working for the city of New York, and I was looking to get out of that. I had my 20 years in there. And I was doing an Internet search, quite honestly, and I saw that somebody in Maryland was doing the same thing. So I put two and two together. Who's doing it here? You know, here I am in the biggest metropolitan area in the country, and I found, lo and behold, that nobody was doing it. So I strictly looked at it from a business uh, standpoint, saying, there's an opportunity out there. It needs to be filled, and that's what I did. But the nice thing about it was I was able to take my educational background and apply it to my, my business background and then my, my career background as being a paramedic and working with the New York DA's office. And so I had the crime scene and the exposure to the people, the bodies, and the situations, and it all came together. Cool. Of the, um, you list a bunch of different infectious agents on your website, Ron, and I, I don't have them in front of me, but I know you've got numerous issues. Could you maybe give us a little background on what types of infectious agents you deal with when you're doing the bio uh, biohazard cleanup? Well, one of the things that we do in, in our business here, and I, I encourage everybody who does any type of restoration to do this, you want to treat every scene, no matter what it is, assuming that it has every possible contagion or pathogen out there. You want to take all the precautions that you can because, God forbid, you don't want to take any of these things home with you. And, you know, for just from the, strictly from the crime-slash-trauma scene where there's body and blood fluids laying around, what we're worried about really is hepatitis and TB more than, you know, HIV or anything else. And the reason being the hepatitis and TB bugs can last a long time outside the body. Unlike, you know, HIV, which is a very weak virus, and, you know, traditionally it can be killed just by changing the, the ambient temperature or just being outside the body for, you know, anywhere from 4 to uh, 10 to 20 hours on the outside that we've seen studies. Uh, so those, you know, TB and hepatitis are the big ones. Obviously, there's a lot of other things as far as airborne pathogens that can occur if you're dealing with, uh, uh, like, bird droppings, things of that nature that you can breathe in and have fungus growing in your lungs and have, you know, respiratory problems down the road. So we always assume, and, you know, here we are, we're assuming that every environment that we're entering is, you know, has everything that we can possibly run into. So we're always, you know, worried about our PPE, making sure our respiratory protection is covered and making sure that all our external skin is covered, if you will. And sure, it's overkill, and we understand that, and sometimes we look like the Martian men coming in or the, the puff balloon guy coming in. Uh, but I think it's important not to take these things home or cross-contaminate other areas. So there would be some sort of risk uh, spreading to adjacent apartments or condominiums, either when body fluid would, you know, drip down or penetrate through walls and, and cavities? Well, it's, the scientific answer is yes, but obviously we have to remember that we don't really know what's in these things. So if we're going with my theory here and saying that everything that we go into or every environment that we enter has everything, then the answer is yes, because if you're transporting uh, body fluids and or blood or what have you to an adjacent property, uh, yes, we're assuming that there, that area is now contaminated, yes. What about odors and insects? 
Well, insects, I mean, it's a, it's a natural process. I mean, you have uh, flies coming in, landing, in, you know, laying larvae, and it's, it's a food source for the larvae and the flies, actually, and they're great vectors for transporting a lot of uh, contagions with them. Uh, so, honestly, what we normally see is, let's say we're talking about a person who has died of, let's just say, natural causes, and they were undiscovered, and, you know, it's a natural decomposition process going on. What we'll normally see, we'll enter the property, and let's say it's, oh, I don't know, 10 days to two weeks, we're going to see anywhere from hundreds to possibly even thousands of flies, larvae, maggots, things of that nature. And what this is, it's, it's the natural decomposition process going on. Uh, it's acting as a food source. The body's breaking down. And we, we see these things. And what happens is the, the flies, the larvae grow, and they become other flies, and they're on the, the contagions, if you will, the body fluids, the body itself, and whatever else is left behind. And they go from there, and they land on sub, you know, objects throughout the apartment or the house or the building or what have you. So theoretically, uh, yes, they are going from one area to another and cross-contaminating. So if there was something, they theoretically are cross-contaminating that area. So that the problem that we run into with that, uh, Cliff, that you bring up, is the fact that when we're dealing with insurance companies and we're dealing with cleaning up properties, they only want to clean up the visual thing. They're not concerned about, well, is there a potential for cross-contamination? Is there this? Is there that? They just want to see the lowest dollar sign they can. And when you're looking at it from a decontamination side, you need to take those things into factors. So uh, the theoretical answer is yes, it does get cross-contaminated. The realistic answer is, well, if it is cross-contaminated, is it cross-contaminating with something that's bad for us? And the really answer to that is we don't honestly truly know. There have been no pro, you know, prospective studies to say that yes, you know, the flies landing here, and yes, this person had this virus or this bacterium and it transported to here and now this area is bad. And that's the problem that we're dealing with in this environment, if you will. Uh, we, we don't have any prospective studies. The only studies that have gone on out there with like decomposition in bodies was from Dr. Bass and you know the University of Tennessee and the, the body farm, which you guys may know or not know right, about. Right. Yeah, and you know they did some fantastic studies, but all those studies were done on the outside where they were burying bodies in different temperatures and dressing them differently and watching the, the uh, uh, decomposition process go on. And it was more for law enforcement, if you will, to be able to tell what stage of decomposition, how long someone's been there, versus what happens in an indoor environment when a dead body is there and they're there for X amount of days and what pathogens are going on. Uh, we did have a, I did have a chance to speak with some of the guys at the body farm, and the best they could offer is they have no recorded record, if you will, of anything harmful in the decomposition process. Now, they could not tell, well, if the, if the person had active TB, is that TB being killed by the decomposition process? And they weren't really able to say that. Uh, and again, because there was no prospective study with that. Ron, I'm, I'm curious, when you were a paramedic, mm -hmm. you were probably oftentimes the first one on the scene. That's Did correct. you have the same type of protection that your guys go in with Oh, now? absolutely not. To this day, here in New York City, I'm, I'm assuming across the nation, you'll get there, and we could get to a, a crime scene where there was, let's say, two or three people. Uh, let's say it was a stabbing of some type of machete or whatever, and there's blood everywhere. And what traditionally happens is uh, the police will be there, we'll be there, we walk in, no respirators, no gloves, no nothing. If we touch something, we'll put some gloves on. Uh, but we'll, you'll never see us put a respirator on in those environments. You know, oh, the person's dead, we just assume, eh, okay, no problem. Or let's say it's a decomposition, it's a bad odor. Historically, what the police in New York City do, they find the first can of coffee, throw it into a pot, put it on a stove, and let it boil over, and it boils over, and it boils over, and all it's doing is masking the odor, and it's not, it's not doing anything as far as the potential pathogens, if you will, uh, that could cause them some harm. And it's amazing in this city, at least, and I'm assuming, again, across the country, you know, especially after the World Trade Center disaster, where we're all concerned about the, the respiratory effects and other things going on uh, with the things that were released into the air. And here we are going into scenes every single day, not worried about it at all. And I, I really think they're missing the point on that. What sort of special equipment do you use for this type of work? Well, quite honestly, when we say special, we honestly are not using anything special that's outside the realm of traditional restoration. And that's one of the things that I think the, the listeners uh, need to understand. I mean, if you're in the restoration field already, this is quite honestly a natural step off, potentially, if you will. 
And what I mean by that is if you know how to clean well and you know how to use the chemicals and the equipment that are out there, theoretically you should be using the same equipment and chemicals already to do the scenes that we're doing. And I'm relating that to crime and trauma scene cleanup, not to like anthrax and things of that nature. Uh, so, well, yeah. Bill, Wag- I'm sorry. Bill Wagon's here with us. He's got a, a question for you. Yeah, Ron, I was wondering, this area does um, differ somewhat in how do you get rid of the materials that are contaminated by blood and body fluids? Okay, each state is very different when, it, when they're regulating uh, waste. And it comes underneath the Regulated Medical Waste Act, which actually originated out of uh, New York State and New Jersey, and they went across the country. And the, the regulations and rules came about from when we had the syringes floating up on the shores here in New York and New Jersey. And the federal government picked up on that, and that's where those regulations came from. The problem with the regulations is this. For example, I'm going to use New York. If an object, and let's take a mattress, let's say somebody dies on a mattress and we need to dispose of it, uh, we treat it as all regulated medical waste. It's all hazardous waste as far as we're concerned, as in our company, BioRecovery. As far as the New York State Department of Environmental Conservation is concerned, if it's not dripping body fluids, it is not considered regulated medical waste. And I really think they're missing the ball on that. Because we all know that if you lift up a mattress, it probably has 50 pounds of fluid in it from somebody who's been lying there two or three weeks. And is that a potential hazard? And the answer is absolutely yes. Uh, So we treat anything that has come into contact with body fluids of any type as regulated waste. So it'll go into a red bag, into a box, and it'll be incinerated just like hospital waste or autoclaved or whatever process they're going to use on it. Ron, if I may, these red bags, they're sometimes given out by retail stores, sometimes around holidays. Does that present problems at, at landfills? Well, yes and no. And what I mean by that, in order to meet the regulation, they have to have the international sign for biohazardous waste on there, and it has to you know, have the words uh, contagious waste or biohazardous waste. Uh, we see a lot of red bags here in the New York City. A lot of little bodega stores on the corner give out. Uh, and the Department of Sanitation, they actually have regulations here saying that you can't use them, uh, but other agencies say you can use them. So that's the problem that we run into here in New York. And it's the same with, uh, you know, whether this waste is regulated or not. The New York City Sanitation Department says you cannot throw anything with blood into the, na- you know, into the sanitation system. Uh, and then the DEC says others, if it's dripping, you can't. But if it's not dripping, you can. Uh, so we, we get a lot of, you know, regulations and rules that counteract each other, if you will. Well, speaking of regulation, uh, we know that there's the OSHA general duty clause about protecting our workers from known hazards and hazards likely to cause serious death and injury. The question is, if I was a sole practitioner, if I started my business, if I worked out of my house, am I exempted from this OSHA regulation? You're exempted from all OSHA regulations when it comes to you as being the sole owner slash proprietor slash practitioner of this. Uh, You do not have to follow that. The OSHA regulations are for employees. And in that case, you as the owner, as the sole practitioner, are not the employee. You would be considered the employer or the sole owner. Ron, speaking of employees, how do you choose employees for this type of work? I mean, I I can't even change a diaper without gagging. Do you have some kind of gag test, or uh, how do you you get these people? (laughs) You know, i got to be honest with you, uh, Joe. We laugh about that and kid about that, but quite honestly, we actually are doing that in a sense because what we do here is uh, we'll we'll take potential people. Oh, you know, I can do that. I've seen it all. I want to go out there and do this and blah, blah, blah. And the first step, obviously, is dealing with the, the odors, if you will, and the sights. Now, the site issue is pretty easy because, again, the pool that we're drawing from are usually people who are in the public safety field, uh, EMS, fire, police guys, who've been there for probably several years and have seen all that. Uh, but these are the same guys who traditionally have, oh, you know, the person's been dead for three weeks and it smells, and I'm not going in. Then they send the rookie cop or whatever in there, and they run out because it smells. And that's, quite honestly, the hardest part. It's the odor problem, not the visual sense, if you will. So what we do is they ride with our crews for, you know, several weeks, and they go out there. And usually we can tell within the first job or two whether they're going to be able to do it or not. I mean, if they go in there and, you know, what we, what we, we sort of – sort of throw them out there to the wolves, if you will. We'll just give them, you know, a uh, N95 or N100 mask, 
or respirator, and they'll go in there, and it does nothing for the odors, obviously, and we're doing that purposely. We want them to be able to smell what's there because when we're done cleaning a job or decontaminating a job, we need to do that nose test. We need to be able to go in there and say, does it still smell? It's very important because if we can smell it, obviously our client can smell it. So they go in, and if they come out gagging and whatever, we know they're not going to have a good time at this job. So, And they usually come to us and say, you know what? This isn't for me. So, yeah, we are giving them the diaper test. Cliff? Yeah, I can understand that um, insurance companies may pay for this. I can also understand that oftentimes the uh, bereaved family may may pay for this. Are there any non-traditional sources that would pay for the service? Well, there are. And when we say – I don't want to say they're non-traditional because they may be traditional here and in, let's say, uh, Arizona or something, they're not traditional. Uh, But let's say you're a victim of a crime, at least in New York State. The New York State Crime Victims Board, and many states do have this because they get federal funding from the Department of Justice for this, offer crime victims compensation. So if you were a victim of a crime or a member of your family was a victim of a crime, uh, they will reimburse to clean these scenes. In New York here, we get $2,500 to clean a scene, and that that absolutely will cover, I would say, probably 95% of any scene that we've you know come across. We have the unusual ones that are very large and big, and that just puts a dent in it. But for the most part, you know, we get our costs covered 100%. Other states, they they limit it to $500 or $1,000. They give a percentage of this and that, so that does cover it. As far as the insurance side, homeowners insurance will cover probably. I would say upwards of somewhere between 90 and 95% of the claims uh, as long as the person that we're cleaning up didn't re- you know, uh, create a crime in the process and they, they were the ones who committed this. One of the other interesting things that we do is we get a lot of suicides in cars. And a lot of people don't realize the, the car insurance, if you will, if you have um, a collision or full coverage on your car, will pay to have this cleaned up as well. So we, we go through that a lot of times. Uh, so we'll, we'll look at car insurance. We'll look at um, the victims' compensation programs. Here in New York, because we have a lot of high-rise buildings, um, we run into a hodgepodge, if you will, of coverage. In other words, we'll get coverage from, let's say, the co-op you know, unit owner. Then we'll have coverage from the, the building itself because the body fluids went into the building and through the apartment below. And then we'll probably have another third insurance company because the, the apartment below has a different you know, carrier. So it, it becomes sort of a, a nightmare, but you can get it covered once you work your way through all this. Bill has a question for you. Yes, Bill. Ron, uh, what's luminol, and, and how could you remove that material? Well, luminol is an interesting thing. If you watch CSI, you know, CSI, Vegas, Miami, and all, New York, and all the other ones, you know, they, they show them the techs and the technicians spraying luminol all over. Quite honestly, luminol isn't used that often. Uh, it's probably one of the most rarely used substances in the CSI arena, if you will. But basically, luminol is a substance that, you know, crime scene technicians, uh, forensic people will, will spray to see if there's a reaction uh, with the luminol to the iron in the hemoglobin from the blood that potentially may be on something. And basically what they're looking for, they're looking for latent prints or they're trying to highlight a, a footstep, if you will, uh, where somebody walked through some blood, and they're just trying to get latent evidence. And that what it does, it, it luminesces under a black light or a, a bluish black light, and they're able to pick up this evidence. Uh, the problem with luminol is, number one, you really can't see it to the naked eye. A lot of people mix up luminol for uh, leucocrystal violet, which is like the purple substance that you see on the walls and you can see it with your naked eye. And that, that's really uh, basically like a dye. And people think that is luminol when, in fact, it's not. Luminol, actually, if you can see it, and very often you cannot see it, will leave like a yellowish tint. And if you just use a, a, a broad-spectrum disinfecting cleaner, and this is one of the things, and Cliff, you'd be good at this, is the fact that anything that we're doing in this field, you should be using cleaner disinfectants, not a just a disinfectant or not a cleaner. I think you need to use both uh, because it's much easier to get into the place that you need to get into, and you're not going to get back to the same place that you were at. Uh, so luminol can be a, a difficult substance to remove, uh, but again, I think when we say luminol, we're really meaning crystal violet because you're not seeing the luminol on TV, you're seeing the crystal violet, and that in of itself is a difficult substance to remove, and it really depends on the substrate that it's been applied to. 
You know, you mentioned um, fingerprint powder. I guess you run into that. That must be challenging. Any tips for professionals on how they might go about removing fingerprint powder? Quite honestly, fingerprint powder is one of the most difficult things for us to remove in this field. And because it's so cheap, and what happens is we, get, we have evidence collection technicians assigned to different parts of the city, and they're usually the newer guys. They're not on the CSI type uh, of response team, not part of the crime scene unit, but they're the, at the precinct level, the precinct level cops who go in, and they're trained to take, uh, you know, pick up evidence, uh, fingerprints, things like that, and they usually get called for burglaries, robberies, things of that nature. The problem is they're so new, they end up putting fingerprint dust everywhere. And there's lots of different types of fingerprint dust. Uh, you, you can, and well, I'll just refer to them as colors. But you have obviously black, white. There's grays. There's reds. Uh, there, there's fluorescent types. Uh, so there's lots of different types. Uh, the problem is it's it's a petroleum-based product for the most part, and it's very fine powder. And in, and what I mean by fine is they're brushing it on with a, a, a cosmetic brush, if you will, because it's so fine and the air, it flows with the air currents, if you will, or the brushing of the, the hairs of the brush. And so it goes everywhere. The, the first thing I would advise people to do is pick up the fingerprint dust that's grossly out. In other words, use, use a HEPA vacuum, vacuum up all the loose fingerprint dust that you can, and then... The next step becomes how do we remove it, let's say, from the, the door jams or the windows or the walls or the tables. Uh, and that's an interesting thing. The thing that works for us the best is actually 409 uh, degreaser spray. It works the best. The problem is we run into two little areas. When you spray any type of spray, it doesn't matter what it is, onto the substance, you're dispersing the fingerprint dust again. So what we advise people do, at least our techs, we, we have terry cloth towels. And the terry cloth or a microfiber towel uh, would work great. It, it, it captures the dust. So we, we advise our techs to spray 409 onto a folded, you know, quad-folded towel and use that to wipe in one direction. If you start going up and down or back and forth, left to right, whatever, it's going to just smear the fingerprint dust all over. The other thing is, if it's applied to flat paint, and we have a lot of artsy people here in the New York area, and they have you know lights, they like flat paint. And if you apply fingerprint dust to that, yes, you're going to get the gross amount off, but you're never going to get the actual staining, if you will, or the residue off. And those areas have to be painted over; they have to be resealed over. Ron, I'm curious, what types of uh, associations do you belong to, and and how do you professionals engaged in, in your field share information? Well, I belong to the uh, American Biorecovery Association, and that's an association that's been around since, let's see, 97, I want to say. And traditionally, that's the association that we call it the trade association for people who are involved with the crime and trauma scene cleanup side. Uh, but not only do members of ABRA, the American Biorecovery Association belonged to that, but they were traditionally in ASCAR. Uh, we traditionally take IICRC classes. We're traditionally in SCRT and others. Um, I think because the crime and trauma scene field, for those who else are part of it as an ABRA, we, we try to pretend that we're isolated and we're these specialists and this is all that we do and nobody else does it. And in reality, though, that's not the case. Many, many, many members of ASCAR, many, many members of SCRT or uh, people who have taken IICRC classes and stuff perform this work. Traditional restoration companies are seeing that it's, it's a revenue source and they're going out there to do that. Now, obviously, I have my, my, my feelings about that, both pro and con, uh, but you know, I think the, the information sharing goes on through ABRA and it goes on through other associations. And if you look, ASCAR in this case or IICRC, they, there's been discussions about offering training classes and things of this nature. And I think they're just starting to see that. I believe they're coming into this field, into the realm, a little late, but I think late is better than never. And I think it's time that people start looking at this field. Although being it a specialty, I think, once again, we're not doing anything out of the ordinary. We're using the same equipment. We're using the same training. I think the hardest part is a mental factor, uh, how to deal with the, the survivors and family versus, you know, uh, doing a, a fire job. And if you think about it, I mean, you're dealing with it with a fire claim. You know, somebody's house just burned down. I mean, you're dealing with the same traumatic stressors, if you will. So I, I, I don't think we're doing anything 
out of the ordinary, extraordinary, if you will. Uh, but I think it's important that you know you you belong to associations, and I'm using associations as in plural, as in general, as in I don't care what part of restoration you're in, you should belong to associations. I think it's very important. Uh, on the internet, there is a Yahoo group for crime and trauma scene cleaners, uh, and if you notice. I don't care what realm, forum, group that you're in, there's always a subgroup for guys who are doing this type of work, and you're seeing more and more people doing it. This has been uh, a really fascinating interview, Ron. I really appreciate you being here. We're running a little short on time. I'd like to bring Dr. Wow in. Dieter, do you have anything you'd like to add or any questions you'd like to add before we move on? Uh, hello, Dieter. Are you still there? Oh, yeah, I'm here. I <clears throat> I didn't hear. I, I the, the the unmuted uh, uh, notice came in when you were talking. Well, it's gotcha. certainly fascinating. I uh, I had absolutely no idea that this. I mean, obviously somebody got to do it. I had no idea that these specialists do exist. And as I always say, there I learn something new every day. It's amazing. Thank you for uh, your input on that, Dieter. And before we move on, is there anything that we missed that you'd like to add, Ron? Uh, one of the things I would like to say for any of the listeners is if you're contemplating getting into this field, I strongly advise getting as much education. If you're into restoration or the cleaning field already, I think as much traditional education that you can and then getting some specialized training if you will and there's a lot of good training programs out there there's some that are offered by the american bio recovery association there's some that are offered by other training entities that are out there i encourage you to get as much training as you can and then if you have problems the nice thing about belonging to associations is the fact that there's somebody to call and the the neat and interesting thing about this field Every single job you go on is different. I mean, we're sort of like voyeurs into people's lives. We get to see things that the rest of the general public doesn't get to see. So from that, it's very fascinating. Any tips for consumers before you go? One of the things that I would advise consumers is when you – when you're hiring someone for this, number one, you're, you're usually working under stresses. Something has happened to either someone in your family or someone that you know, and you're usually stressed out by it, and you usually just want to – it's the ooh-ah syndrome. Ooh, look what happened. Ah, I got someone to take care of it, and I don't have to deal with it. The problem with the ooh-ah syndrome, we're, we're being spontaneous. We're just hiring the first people that come along. I think just like any other restoration field, if you will, I think you need to make sure that the people who you are hiring are certified in that field. I think the people that you are hiring need to have references, and I truly think the people you are hiring should belong to professional associations or organizations. Well, thank you, Ron. Cliff, before we go, you brought Ron on. I really appreciate you doing that, and I wanted to see if you had anything you'd like to add. No, I think he covered it all, and uh, I think he did it admirably. I'm and hopefully maybe we'll bring you back in the future because I think we have some other issues that we'd like to go into with you. Great. I appreciate your time. Well, thank you, Ron. And before we go, how would our guests uh, and listeners be able to contact you if they needed to talk to you further or use your services, unfortunately? By all means, you can find us on the Internet at biorecovery.com. Or you can call our toll-free number, 877-246-2532, and we're happy to answer anybody's questions or give them further information on training or whatever. And I was reminded that I forgot your intro music, so we're going to use it as exit music. But please, um, we always encourage all of our guests to stick around, and we have a little roundtable at the end of the show here. So if you can stick around, we'd love to have you, Ron. I'd be Thank happy you for to joining you. us. Something happened with the sound clip, but that's all right. We can just move on and uh, take care of that later. On the first break, i like to remind folks that the IAQ radio program is approved for American IAQ Council renewal credits. We're working on getting credits for a few other organizations as well. If you would like more information on that, just email me at joe.hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S, at iaqtraining.com or just info at iaqtraining.com. Our next segment is called IEC What's News, and today we will have the editor of Indoor Environment Connections with us, Steve Sauer. Steve, are you on the line? Hey, how's it going? 
<laughs> Great, Steve. Good to I have just, you here. Uh, I think I'd like to disclose that I was not subjected to the diaper test before appearing on today's show. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Thank so what's for news? That. Well, in what, uh, what's news, Steve? Okay, in the pages of our uh, January issue, we reported that IICRC, the inspection of uh, the Institute rather of Inspection, Cleaning, and Restoration Certification, pledged to drop its trademark claim to the term "indoor environmental professional." The organization obtained a trademark on the term in September 2005 after plans unfolded to have a certification program using the name "indoor environmental professional." But the fact that the term is used in the S520 mold remediation standard created a stir both inside and outside the standards revision committee because the standard would need to be devoid of commercialism if it's going to be approved as an American national standard. So IICRC now says there's going to be no certification program with that name, no trademark with that name, and no trademark on the letters IEP either. This plan has been met with agreement in the industry. But for the, uh, for the IICRC, that was just one problem resolved, a few more to go. And coming up in the February issue, we'll find out how well IICRC was able to resolve the issues brought up in a pair of appeals to the standards revision process. And one of these appeals is actually something that your listeners have already heard about because it was filed by Elisa Larkin, who spoke about it right here on IAQ Radio not long afterward. It's kind of built on it. Can you hear me okay? Yes, uh, to actually, to build on that, I this morning had a meeting with Larry Cooper, and actually he would like to uh, come on the show as well, so the future may be very interesting indeed. Okay. That, that sounds great. We'd love to have Larry. What else is news today, Steve? Well, also in the uh, February issue coming up, we will follow up on another industry organization. This one's called the Environmental Education Foundation, and it's ongoing feud with the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, which to me is sounding more and more like a bad breakup. On the one hand, you have this industry organization claiming it still has a relationship with the EPA. And on the other hand, you have the EPA claiming that it's not only over, but it's been over for almost a year, and that the relationship was never that good to begin with. The EPA said this in October when it sent a cease and desist letter to get the organization to stop promoting a contract that it had with the EPA in 2004 and 5. The organization's been saying its training program is the result of that contract, and the EPA denies that. We will explain how a, recent, a rash of recent emails impacts the members of over 200 other organizations, both inside and outside the indoor air quality industry. Well, I I got a few of them myself, Steve. It's, yeah, uh, a, a couple came into my office times. too. <clears throat> All right, what else do you have coming up? Or I guess we're we're looking toward February now. Huh? Yeah, yeah. Well, also in the February issue, we'll talk to the president of NADCA, uh, Bill Lundquist, um, a man that I think your next guest ought to be uh, pretty familiar with. Um, Bill is going to be sharing his perspective in the uh, interview without, uh, about things happening in the world of duct cleaning and uh, indoor air quality as a whole. And uh, we're also talking with Brian Spiegel, uh, president of the Association of, Spe- of Specialists in Cleaning and Restoration. It's so funny, I normally call them ASCAR, and it's, it's right. difficult to uh, just pronounce the uh, actual name of the, <laughs> you know, what that actually stands for. But uh, both groups, uh, ASCAR and NADCA, have meetings coming up in March, so uh, the presidents of both are going to be telling us a little bit about both. And we will have the executive director of uh, ASCAR on later this month. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Did you have another one? Yeah. We'll also learn about some recent settlements regarding air cleaners and property damage related to Hurricane Katrina. Plus, Dr. Harriet Burge talks about using encapsulants on mold. Doug Clatter uh, on a new radon training facility in Guam, and Bill Turner on locating phantom odors in schools. And I believe that, uh, Joe, you may have contributed an editorial to the February issue. So uh, without letting the cat out of the bag, would you like to tell us a little bit about that? Well, I don't know, Steve. been a little bit interesting give and take there. I will be uh, following up. I'm, I'm on the editorial advisory board, and I guess we're all uh, being asked to put together kind of a state of the industry address. Mine will fo- focus on educational issues and uh, how we should be handling educational. And then I like to call it verification of education since certification is such a 
controversial word, but we will discuss that issue. Okay. All right. And I, well, I, I just want to say that I think I like the uh, Jane's addiction at the top of the show. Uh, okay, Cliff. Uh, that, I'm sorry, but Zach got a big smile on his face. Yeah, <laughs> that's, actually, that's actually my favorite intro, by the way. Now, if they can just tell me what they're saying at the beginning, I'll. I'll, I'll much, uh, I myself had no <laughs> idea. <laughs> I think I like it better than the Chambers Brothers, but there's nothing wrong with that either. Uh, I'm actually, I'm actually very glad that somebody picked it up. All right. Other than me. Oh, cool. Well, thank you. Thanks for joining us, Steve. And please stick around if you'd like to. Uh, join the panel at the end of the show. Thanks a lot, Joe. Thanks for having me on. Uh, you're welcome. Our next guest today is Tim Hoiser. I don't know if we have a clip for Tim or not. We had a little backup there. Thank you, CJ. I know Tim would appreciate that. Mr. Hoysert is the president of Twins, LLC, an environmental company in Waynesboro, Virginia. He has over 30 years of experience in the HVAC and air duct cleaning business. Tim serves as a board member of the NADCA National Air Duct Cleaners Association. His scope of experience includes a four-year degree in environmental controls, a master's license in mechanical construction, in the state of Virginia. He is also an Air Systems Cleaning Specialist, ASCS, more acronyms for you, Bill, a certified ventilation inspector, and he is an AMIAQ Council certified CIE and CMR. Tim has also been an instructor and speaker on numerous IAQ and HVAC issues and has extensive experience in residential and commercial HVAC systems cleaning and microbial remediation. Welcome, Tim. How you doing, Joe? Great. Good to have you on, Tim. Uh, it's, it's been a pleasure. Uh, I guess you got a little lead-in from Steve Sauer with the your NADCA. Well, I, I don't recall if it's the president, Bill, is yeah, uh, Bill. going to be interviewed. Yeah. And uh, how long have you been a NADCA member, Tim? Thirteen years. Thirteen years. What? I, I'm curious. What made you decide to join NADCA? Was it a big uh, organization back when you started? No, actually, it was still in the concepts of it. NACA got started back in the late 80s. And I got into duct cleaning back in the late 80s. But one of my second vacuum trucks I bought, I heard from the supplier about NACA. And I went in 1994 to one of their national shows that they did in Nashville. And that's how I got hooked on them. As a dirty duck sucker, how has your company benefited from being a NADCA member? <laughs> As a what? A dirty duck sucker. Cliff <laughs> was a fellow dirty duck sucker at one time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. I guess you could call him, he could call you that. Yeah. <laughs> um, actually, NADCA brought a, not, a lot of knowledge. It was able to bring other associations visible for education purposes. But the biggest thing I have ever gotten out of being a NACA member is other members from all over the country. Um, you learn so much sitting basically like at lunch or at a break time, talking to other members, seeing what they're doing. Uh, and you find all kinds of different ways that you can improve how you're doing things or even how you can improve your business. And I have learned more from other people than anything else. Bill, Bill has a question for you here, Tim. Tim, I'm always fascinated when people um, volunteer their time. What what made you decide to run for the NATCA Board of Directors? Oh, let's see. I've been a regional coordinator with NATCA for eight years, so I have, was involved on both ends of the street, you might say, and got asked if I'd be interested, and I said yes, because that way I can get a little more into you know policy and and the direction that NACA was going to be going. Um, and it fa you know, fascinated me. Yeah, the EPA has a document on their website called Should You Have Your Ducks Cleaned in Your Home? Uh, it's pretty negative towards duck cleaning. Why do you think they wrote the article, and where do you think they went wrong? Well, it wasn't a question of anybody going wrong. 
That article was written after uh, basically a duct cleaning test that was done down in Raleigh. And at the time, duct cleaning was just evolving even more. And the parameters, the uh, engineering controls in performing this test had not been set up properly. Nobody knew how to write them at the time. So it it was a test that was kind of, they were winging it. And that's where this article came from. Um, The house that was being used had a lot of holes cut into it. There was a lot of outside uh, intrusions into it. And at the time, nobody knew any different. So that's where this article came from. Now, today, things are done a lot different. Um, More engineering controls are brought into place. And a lot of that has to do with uh, the indoor air quality uh, divisions and stuff now. So if, it, if that same test was done today, it would probably be done totally different. The article would be done totally different. And right now we have talked to EPA on numerous times. We're trying to get a new article written about duct cleaning and make some of the corrections. That publication, I've noticed that it was up and down. And they had it a new one they had started. What, what happened there, Tim? Are you familiar with what I'm talking well, about? It, typical government, this person's here today, gone tomorrow, another person comes in, gone, and that had a lot to do with it. Um, it's just a matter of our person that handles that report with us that also works with the EPA, um, getting everybody together at the same time so we can get through it. It, it was just, you know, it's been scheduling. What? You know, I understand you're representing NADCA, working with the EPA's antimicrobial division on the use of antimicrobials in HVAC systems. And I'm wondering, what drives the agency's myopia, fascination, uh, obsession with antimicrobials and air ducts? And, you know, personally, I don't see any difference when antimicrobials are used to mop the floor in that room or used in the air handling system. In either of these situations, people are going to be exposed, and they're going to be exposed via air, et cetera, and and probably more exposed via contact. I I just don't understand it. I'm looking for some more insight. It's a tough one. Uh, You you know just as well as I do, dealing with the government is very interesting. Um, Their views are totally different than what the norm would be. But they base a lot of their stuff, from what I've been gathering over the last couple of times, on complaints that come into their office. And, you know, their reports are based on complaints. Now, are these complaints – I'm sorry, Tim, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no, the complaints are from all over the wall. That's what I'm wondering. Are they – somebody misused or, or used an inappropriate uh, technique or an inappropriate cleaner? Um, oh, is that it, the type of thing? It's anything. It's from using inappropriate cleaners, not checking the occupants of the space they're in, whether somebody, for example, might have an allergic reaction to chlorine. I'm just you know, pulling that off the wall. But you know, not, not doing a little homework before they use something. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that they're coming out with, you know, has to do with the complaints they're getting. And it's going to be, it's going to take a while to change them around. And they got a couple of proposals on their website that are looking for comments on some of this stuff. I don't know if you have that. Do you, Cliff? Oh, yeah, no. And I actually, we've commented and advised some other people to comment and so on and so forth. I've actually yeah. had some conversations with Tracy Lance and other people that are there. But personally, I just don't think that they're really using a common-sense approach, nor do no. I think that they get it. But I, I agree with you 100% on that one. And that's, you know, the the one regulation they extended the time frame on that they're trying, they want comments, a lot of them. And I think that's, as association, as people in the business, that's where we need to step up, give them our comments. So hopefully maybe we can get stuff changed. Yeah, the whole thing is going on in the mold business as well. I'm not sure whether you and the listeners are aware, but, uh, you know, for some reason they now, I mean, it used to be antimicrobials, if it killed athlete's foot fungi, which was a legitimate pathogen, uh, you could 
have mold claims. Now they want all the specific mold testing, and you know, they can't make up their mind exactly what organisms that they want you to test on. And uh, I don't know. It's, it's the government stuff. Every time I've talked to them, I talk to a different person. Absolutely. And one person doesn't talk to the other. I'll give you a fine example. I'm dealing with two different divisions there. Uh, one, Tracy. But there's another lady who handles as far as workers' exposure and applicators' uh, exposure as far as antimicrobials. It's a whole other division. Those two never talk to each other. It's tough to get up to in writing, too. Yeah, and the kicker is they're both on the same floor in the same building. (laughs) That was the funny part. Is that the one they're looking for more comments on? Uh, I know Cliff had it in a little – we have a a segment we do on – you know, things in the news and current events. Uh, is that the one that we had on earlier, yes. Cliff? Yes, Joe. Okay. All right. Well, Tim, you, I'd like to move on to some of your techniques, actually. I, I, I've talked to you about some of these before. And uh, first, let's get a, an overview of different types of air systems and duct cleaning techniques. Can you give us your thoughts on, for instance, brushes, the whips, air washing, containment, vacuum? You know, there's... Uh, there's all these different methodologies. When are they appropriate? Well, every job's different, and you have to use the appropriate equipment and technology depending on the job. You're going to have a vacuum collection unit. That's a give me, no matter what the job is. You're commercial industrial, you could be using contact cleaning, where somebody is suited up for under OSHA regs to actually crawl through the ductwork with a HEPA vac, vacuuming all the walls of the ductwork. Then you have guys who are going in and actually using brushes, rotating, or they're using air whips with anywhere from 175 pounds and up to break loose your dust and dirt so the vacuum collection unit can remove it. Uh, Residential, similar things. Uh, With brushes, you do have to be careful because flex duct can create a problem depending on the type of brushes you're using line duct work, duct board. So every job's different, and depending on what the job is, depends on what equipment and what tools you need to do that job. So you need a lot of imagination, too. What about... I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Uh, What about wet cleaning? Have you ever wet cleaned the inside of duct work? You know, we used to do that on fires fairly often, you know, on metal line duct work. uh, I wonder whether you'd ever tried it. Years ago, I did. Today, I won't do it. Mm -hmm because of the microbial part of it now. You know, anytime you're using water and you you know, you're inside ductwork, you could you have a problem possibly with microbials later. Yeah, but uh, it's galvanized. Excuse me? It's galvanized and they put tin and all sorts of other you know, zinc and all that other stuff. Right. That's what in the ductwork and it seems it's pretty inherently antimicrobial. But true, but the dust and the dirt that's in there is not. And you can't get it 100% clean. You know, that's impossible. So you're still going to have a little residue. That would, you know, scare me from doing that. Plus, you know, you're not going to be able to get it 100% dry. You know, and it depends on the size of the ductwork, too. You know, there's ductwork you can barely get your hand in. Right. That's very difficult to try to clean with, you know, using a wet system. And I've done it, you know. And air so far has worked out very well in doing that. Um, you know, we're able to take it right down. You know, it's not going to be white glove clean. Bill has a question for you. Tim, Tim, how do you clean coils? We clean them. We're a mechanical contractor also, so sometimes we have to clean them in place, sometimes we pull them out. And we're going to pressure wash them, or we're using coil cleaner. We have several different types by several different manufacturers to get the coils clean. By and large, are those products, are they acidic or are they alkaline in nature? Uh, depends on the product. If we're pulling it out, if it's a condensing coil, a VAP coil, um, it goes both ways. <laughs> I understand that you use nitrogen. Yes. And how do you, what, or I guess, what is nitrogen? Why is it unique as a cleaning material and how do you use it and where do you use it? Okay. Uh, most air duct cleaning involves using air pressure and a lot of times for example hospitals or high-rise buildings you can't always get an air compressor 
up to whatever floor you're on. And if you can, it's so big, it makes so much noise, you can't hear. So through a friend of ours, we came. they were using it, and they put me onto it. We're getting the big 1,200-pound nit- liquid nitrogen bottles. Mm-hmm. It's a special regulator that comes off of that, and we're actually pulling the gas off the night the, the boiling off. Right. Right. And we can actually regulate that down to oh about two hundred pounds, but we actually bring it up to three. It works very well. So now here we are having a constant air source, no noise, and it dissipates. It works great. Plus nitrogen doesn't you know, it dilutes oxygen, but on the other side it also is a nice little sanitizer, too, because it kills a lot of stuff. Better not let Tracy hear that. Yeah, I know. No, actually, I, actually Tracy and me had that conversation a okay. while back. Okay, all right. Yeah, Pro- proper engineering it- control she's comfortable with. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but on the other part, no, she ain't. Right, right. Yeah. Right. Um, so. What sort of tips do you have for professionals out there that you may not have as much experience or have had the same unique opportunities that you've had? They they need to join again so the associations, and I'll, I'll be honest with you. You know every association has its ups and downs, but I'll tell you what the people involved with these associations you learn so much from them. I I have learned so much from guys out west in Florida because you know everybody does it different, and you learn different tricks of the trade that other guys have tried. Um, also, too tools. Tools is a big one in this business, no matter what you are. But sometimes you can learn how to make some of those tools from other guys. Or they're using a special tool for doing special duck work or drops, high rises. You you have a duck chase going down, and they'll give you different ideas of how to make up a special tool for doing that. That alone, just the knowledge you pick up from other people, well worth it. Uh, That was my biggest thing with NACA, that the, the different variety of people at these shows that you get to talk to. Tim, I um, wanted to see if we could get Dr. Wild back on the line here. Um, just a moment. Dieter, are you still there? Yes, I am. Hello, Dieter. Anything you'd like to ask or add? Well, I certainly have you heard it now twice, and I certainly can, can uh, uh, speak to that. Um, belong to a good association, and have conversations with your peers and like Tim, uh, by the way, hello, Tim, how are you doing? Hi, Dater. And uh, I mean, it is so valuable. It is unbelievable. We see it in our classes, which we are teaching, uh, Joe and I and, and Tim sometimes and so on. And we see that people are interacting and uh, learn from each other and said, oh, my, I didn't even hear that. And uh, I enjoy going to uh, the the conventions, get-togethers of, you know, whatever, IAQA or Industrial Hygiene Association, whatever it is. I always learn something over there. And it was mentioned before, you know, get as much education as you can. Uh, there, There is new information out there, and there are people who disseminate that information. And um, that, that, that is essential in... In any business, it doesn't matter whether you're in indoor air quality or you know, whatever. I, I think that is an, an excellent idea. Thank you, Dieter. Uh, Tim, one area we did not get into that I know you are a proponent of in certain cases that uh, oftentimes when people talk about uh, duct cleaning and HVAC systems cleaning and microbial remediation issues is the coatings issue. Um, I understand you do use coatings fairly yeah. regularly, and, and I wondered if you could comment on that. We use coatings on duct liner and everything. Uh, you know, it's basically to for particulates. You get fiberglass that could starting to wear down. So we'll go in and coat it. But it's a judgment call. Is it going to be coated or replaced? So you have to look at that part of it. So we do quite a bit of that uh, in several commercial buildings as far as going in, coating the liner. Now, if the liner is deteriorating, we recommend replacement. If in their budget they're not scheduled for any replacement for a while, 
and they don't, you know, they're going to hold off or any number of reasons, then we'll go in and coat it, but we make sure it's a, they know it's a temporary fix, that sooner or later they are going to have to replace it. And coatings, do, coatings work very well. We have a, a university. We coated, oh, it's got to be the 13, 14 years ago, holding up very well. And you would not recommend these in residential properties, I assume? We we do, but I'm going to be honest with you. In residential properties, sometimes it's more, it's economically better to replace the ductwork. Yep, um, because, replace it, huh? Right, because you know we're looking at small ductwork, okay? And by the time you get done, the labor involved for coating and the cost of the coating sometimes outweighs the cost of having a you know the mechanical guy come in and replace the ductwork. Now, commercial industrial, that's not the case. You're looking at big ductwork. And it's more economical sometimes to either reline it or coat it. Any tips for our consumers out there, Tim? Yes. Check out the contractors you're using. Uh, Several things. Don't go with the guy for $100 because, one, he's going to be in and out most of the time in an hour where a normal 1,500-square-foot house is going to take anywhere from three to eight hours, depending on how much duct work. Uh, also, too, check to make sure any contractor coming in is properly insured and licensed in your state. We see a lot of guys that are out here working with less than $50,000 worth of insurance, and if you burn your house down, you're not covered. And also, too, a lot of them are working outside their business license. In a lot of states today now, you have to have a mechanical license to do duct cleaning, and some of them do not. So you want to know that you know you got a person who's properly insured, properly licensed, and they they should have somewhat of a background, a little bit on the mechanical systems in general. They need to know what the coils are, what what to look for, you know, and everything. Uh, have an idea so that they don't damage your system. Is there anything Sorry. you think we missed? Anything you think we missed, Tim? You'd like to add? Oh, not off the top of my head. <laughs> How do people get in contact to... with you? Excuse me? How do people get in contact with you? Uh, they can call us. We have a one eight seven seven twin air And like I said, I get calls from all over the country uh, from people wanting information on duck cleaning, whether they're getting into the business or not, or just have questions on looking for equipment. Um, or they can email me at twinsair dot excuse me twinsair at comcast dot net twinsair at comcast dot net right so matter of fact you can't huh go ahead I've had people from teaching with Joe that have called called me up from all over having questions along for whether it's duct cleaning or even mold um, looking for different things because they can't find it in their area. So I guess I have to cancel that ninety nine ninety nine uh, duct cleaning that we had coming. <laughs> if you want to spend ninety nine ninety nine, go right ahead. But your ductwork still possibly could be dirty. Well, how much should I expect to spend? I've got a twenty five hundred square foot home. I've got ducts. It's a ranch. Between six and eight hundred dollars, give or take. Okay. Okay. And if you take well, that amount, break it up amongst the your age of your house, works out not bad. All right. Well, thank you for joining us. What we'd, if you could stay on the line for a moment, we're going to uh, do a little roundtable here. It looks like we still have everybody on the line. Let's go back uh, to Ron for a moment. Ron, are you still on the line with us? I sure am, Joe. Ron, it, it was great to have you. I just wondered, is there anything you wanted to add or maybe ask Tim? Or... One of the things that I would like to caution people with uh, especially people who are getting into this business, is the use of, and I know this is dear to Cliff, the use of antimicrobials. Uh, one of the nice things about being in New York State is the fact that if you're applying an antimicrobial, uh, you do not have to be a licensed uh, pesticide applicator, which is really, really nice. However, we do get the, the side benefits of it killing the bugs as well. Uh, so I think you need to make sure if you're going to get into, this, into the commercial end of this business, make sure you check your individual state because you may need to be licensed as a pesticide applicator. That's some excellent advice there. Steve Sauer, are you still? Uh, I don't think Steve's still on the line there. How about uh, Dieter? Did you still have anything you'd like to add? 
Well, not 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 really. I uh, you know certainly uh, and, and and Cliff, even though he makes a living with antimicrobials, is the first one to say don't misapply those. Read the label and uh, be careful with them and 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 do it the way it is supposed to be uh, done, and then you are fine. You know, I have uh, I have applied. I worked for the Bayer Chemical Corporation. They make millions of pounds of pesticides, agricultural chemicals, if you want. And again, you can you can screw up with them like you will not believe. And I have seen them applied beautifully and very safely, and they were yeah doing exactly what they were engineered for. Bill, anything you'd like to add? Well, I think that the two guest uh, specialties sometimes overlap. I think there may be uh, cases where you may need to have your air ducts cleaned after a, a trauma situation. So it's nice to see the two gentlemen be on the show at the same uh, same week. You know, I, w- I would actually recommend that. You know, you bring that up, and I, I really neglected to touch on that. But I, I truly believe if it's a private residence, you should have your duct cleaned after any trauma scene cleanup. I think it's just prudent. Yeah, we do it. You have done that, Tim? Yeah. Absolutely. All right. Cliff, anything you'd like to add before we... Yeah, uh, actually, I, I've got a, a question for, for both of our guests, and it really, um, it's the same question, but for a different field. Are either of you aware, or could you tell us, or put, I guess, let me rephrase it. How many states regulate what you do? Like, Tim, how many states get involved with the regulation of air duct cleaning? And, Ron, how many states get involved with the regulation of trauma cleanup? Uh, Who would like to go first? Let's go with Tim. In reference to duct cleaning, I think seven states off the top of my head that do regulate. You have to have a mechanical license to do it. You know, it's not a quiz, but do you know any of them or some of them? Or? Uh, I believe Florida, California, Massachusetts. I know Virginia does. Uh, Louisiana. Oklahoma. I would have, in all honesty, I'd have to look that one up. Okay, I'm not sure. Okay. All right. Yeah. And I believe I heard Georgia was one, too, for some reason. That sticks out in my mind, but I'd have to. So, oh, Texas. Okay. Yeah. Hey, in reference to. Same the, question, Ron? In, in the. Crime and trauma scene cleanup, there's only two states that have statewide regulations, one being California and one being Louisiana. Uh, New York is currently working on city regulations, and that's all that we know of. Okay, cool. Thank you. Tim, I'm sorry, I I may have cut you off. Did you have something you wanted to add? Yeah, in reference to antimicrobials, something we started doing a while back. If there's young children, older adults, we try to get a medical clearance before we, if we have to spray anything in the residence. Okay. And with that, I, if anyone doesn't have anything else to add, Bill, we okay with you? Didn't um, use too many acronyms today, Bill? Not too many acronyms, and you made people explain them if they used them. Bill's the acronym police here. We like that and uh, appreciate that. All right. Well, what I'd like to do is, first of all, thank our my co-host, Cliff Zlotnick, for calling in from Clearwater, um, our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil, thank you, Dieter, for joining us again today. Pleasure, pleasure, anytime. Uh, always a pleasure to have you, Dieter. Our, uh, today sitting in Cliff's chair is uh, Bill Wagen, the unsmoke instructor extraordinaire. Thanks, Bill. And uh, we'd also like to, of course, thank our two guests, Tim Hoysert and Ron. I'm going to try and get it right here, Ron. Gosperdowski. Gosperdowski. <laughs> All right. But, you know, and I'm actually a Polish boy. I should know that pronunciation, but I guess Hughes doesn't sound Polish, but the other side was Putz. Um, and I think that was shortened as time went on. When, and, of course, we always have to thank our growing group of loyal listeners. We uh, just want to make a note. IAQ training passed the uh, – 20 show uh, record last week. We've got our 21st show in the can here today, and we've had over 2,000 downloads, and things are uh, looking really good. Thanks to all of our loyal listeners. And please uh, join us again here next week at noon for IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 